Welcome to Pottery Visited, episode 36. I'm Tori. And I'm Shay. Today we are covering the last chapter in Chamber of Secrets, chapter 18, Dobby's Reward. Or, as we like to call it, You Meddling Kids. This is a very Scooby-Doo-esque book. (laughs) We've had it with you meddling kids and your darn house elf. (laughs) Well, we start off with the image of Harry, Ron, Ginny, and Lockhart coming to McGonagall's office. Harry is covered in blood and slime. He's holding a sword and a hat. Ginny's miraculously alive. Lockhart doesn't know what's going on. And I think just the image of the four of them walking into this office is so funny. It's like, what have you gotten yourselves into this time, children? Especially knowing like how young they are too. Like Harry's just this twelve-year-old that's covered in blood and slime with a, with a freaking sword, with a sword. <laughs> just like casually carrying a sword. Where it's like put against like Mrs. Weasley like sobbing thinking her daughter's dead in like this dark office in front of the fire where McGonagall and Dumbledore are like very solemn and then all of a sudden like these kids come out. Roll in 12 year olds. Harry just rolls in being like by the way save the day. No big deal. (laughs) It's my usual thing. Setting some president. So we also find out that Dumbledore is back. Harry walks in expecting McGonagall and Dumbledore's there. Yeah he does that sometimes. I think it's it's funny that Dumbledore is smug as fuck like he planned this he wanted harry to go into the chamber he wanted harry to rescue Ginny, and he's just like he's not even really hiding it like he's notably like "Mm, no good harry's arrived about on time okay yep this is what i anticipated and expected like so so smug and then we have mcgonagall on the other hand who is so so stressed and horrified and i think if the kids had been hurt any more than they were she might have killed dumbledore like (laughs) spoiler alert it's not snape mcgonagall kills dumbledore yeah like she's so mad and probably extra mad and stressed and horrified seeing how smug dumbledore is because there's no way you look at dumbledore in this scene and you don't think he's fucking okay with this he approves of everything that just happened and knowing like not knowing this is the end result encouraged it to happen like yeah, I think it's described Dumbledore as beaming when Harry walks in, like, aha, he did the thing I wanted. And McGonagall is literally taking deep breaths, like having a panic attack, seeing these children. She's like, I'm going to kill Albus Dumbledore. This is how he dies. Yeah, I just, I feel so bad for McGonagall. Like, Dumbledore, he orchestrates all these things for Harry to do and almost dies. And she's just like, you know, her nerves are like on the edge. Yeah, the poor her and her and uh, Madame Pomfrey. These people who actually care about the well-beings of the children are going through a rough time at this school. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's a hard, hard job. But uh, of course, McGonagall's like, you need to tell us, like, what the hell happened? Like, what were you doing? And so Harry has to describe like all the things leading up to him going into the Chamber of Secrets. And I find it very funny that he left the fact that they made Polish's potion and interrogated Malfoy in the Slytherin common room out of this whole cell story. <laughs> if it's not essential to like the overall plot, it can be left out of the summary, especially if it's going to get you in trouble. Like he's like, what do they absolutely have to know for it to make sense and to justify our behavior? And what is the absolute minimum we can tell them to not get in trouble? You know, I feel like if I were asked to summarize this book in a short amount of time, I would probably not include the Polyjuice Potion either because... All they learn is Draco isn't the heir of Slytherin. I don't know. It just I get it. I get why he left it out. Keeping himself out of trouble. <laughs> I get I get why he left it out too, because McGonagall actually does note that you both broke like so many school rules in the process of getting into the Chamber of Secrets. So he's like, better not tell them about the illegal potion we made in the bathroom. On the list, yeah, things to leave out. Let's leave out that one. 
Harry is worried about Ginny getting in trouble because the diary doesn't work anymore. So all she really has is Harry's word that Riddle made her do this. And so he kind of looks at Dumbledore and Dumbledore like reads his mind and it's like, ah, the diary, of course, it was Voldemort that possessed Ginny. And this is why she did it. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally Voldemort reading Harry's mind. <laughs> Dumbledore, fuck. <laughs> it's totally Dumbledore reading Harry's mind in that moment, for sure. Um, but also, like, even if Dumbledore didn't do that, like, Ginny has no motive. She obviously feels guilty and, like, doesn't know Parseltongue on her own. So, like, to me, any decent amount of investigation would show, like, there was some sort of treachery afoot and she can't be held responsible. And even if you sort of hold her responsible, she's 11 and nobody died, so... Yeah. Like Dumbledore says, no one was, there was no lasting damage. I mean, people lost out of months of school, but, you know... Yeah, just the educational damage, but he loves educational damage. He does not want these kids educated, so... <laughs> personal victory for Dumbledore every time the children don't attend class. We talked about this a lot last episode, but I just feel bad for Jenny and like the trauma she's facing. Like when Harry's describing everything, she's just like crying and like hugging her parents and and Dumbledore doesn't really like I don't think he really addresses the trauma she went through. He's like, oh just go to the hospital wing and have a hot chocolate. You'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely. He absolutely does not properly like his top priority should be checking if Ginny's like physically okay. And then immediately like sending her up to the hospital or getting her help or like those are priorities not like gathering more fun information on harry potter for his scrapbook like that just it doesn't seem <laughs> it doesn't seem necessary i don't know but yeah and then he's like we should have a feast and celebrate meanwhile jenny's just like crying in the hospital wing traumatized she almost died yeah literally goodness not to mention the emotional guilt of everything she's been through and like partially blaming herself one thing I do love is Arthur Fergin Weasley just being like, Ginny, I've always told you, never trust anything that thinks for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. Like, what a what an Arthur Weasleyism, Like, just classic Arthur. How how did Ginny possibly forget that important tidbit? It's like those things that your, your dad or your parent always says to you that you kind of, like, blow off because they say old time. Yeah, like old timey catchphrases. Yeah, for sure. So, well, Dumbledore makes excuses for everyone to leave so he can have Harry Potter time. As he always does. He's such a fanboy. <laughs> I'm moving before that. Uh, Harry mentions that the diary, like, um, when Harry mentions the diary was, like, Tom Riddle from his, like, teenage years. Dumbledore, it says, it says Dumbledore's very interested. So I'm wondering if Dumbledore is making the connection that it was a Horcrux or maybe he's thinking something along the lines of that. Yeah, it's definitely a, uh, like a big, big sort of hint at future things because he really does say sort of the exact words, which is Voldemort put a little bit of himself in Harry, which is true, he did, but like more so than Dumbledore thinks in that moment, sort of. He didn't just put a bit of his magic in Harry. He literally put a piece of himself there. And I wonder if the author, I don't think the author had anything planned that far ahead. I think this is one of those things that like, when it was written in this book originally, it was written as like a, a some of his magic bounced into Harry. And then it's one of the things that worked out really well in hindsight once the author developed the Horrorcrux concept further. She could go back and see like, oh, this works with this thing. Yeah. I do like the idea that Ron's very happy Hermione will be okay. Yes. It's so cute. I also <laughs> love that 
Both Harry and Ron get awards for special services to the school, just like Voldemort did. <laughs> nice. But they actually deserve theirs. Yeah. I hope it goes on the same shelf. Do they leave the Tom Riddle? I mean, they do leave the Tom Riddle special service I award guess. up. Hilarious. They should totally put Harry and Ron's right next to it because they were all involved in that fun adventure in the Chamber of Secrets. I mean, you'd think once you become like a war criminal supervillain, they'd take down your trophies from the school trophy hall, but apparently not at Hogwarts. Not at Hogwarts. Everything's backwards. But I do, I do, I talked to this bit before, but I do love the idea where Dumbledore is just like, let's celebrate and have a feast. And McGonagall's just like, so stressed out, like everything's just been so terrible for so long. And she's just like, he's like, go inform this, like the kitchen, like the house. And she's like, whatever. Yeah, because that's the gosh darn priority. We need to wake up all the sleeping students. Yeah. And feed them. Feast. Let's celebrate. <laughs> Goodness. And it's like the middle of the night, too. I'd be so mad. I'd be like, we'll celebrate at breakfast. <laughs> Goodness. I also like that when Lockhart rediscovers he's a professor, he's so shocked. He's like, wow, I must have been hopeless as a teacher. And it's true. That is correct. Yeah, he is hopeless. I do wonder if Dumbledore knew Lockhart was a fraud like the whole time because he does mention like you were like turned by your own sword, Gilderoy. Yeah. Like meaning that like he used a memory charm to do his thing and it rebounded on him well i think dumbledore was aware of it because i think dumbledore knew some of the wizards who may have originally done some of the feats lockhart took credit for i think he may have like known those people or had an understanding of them so i think he was suspicious of lockhart sort of from the get-go if so it was very negligent of him because why did he want someone like lockhart teaching students he never wants someone teaching students. That's the trick. The true moral of the story and priority is that Harry learned to be modest and not give out autographs. So it was a success in Dumbledore's eyes. The fact that Ron could have actually gotten hit by that memory spell and had the rest of his life ruined and not been able to recognize his own family doesn't matter because Harry learned a valuable lesson about humility and modesty. I also love... Lockhart being like, I haven't got a sword. That boy has one. He'll lend it to you. For all your sword needs. All your, yeah, just like, what a goofy line. That's such a funny line. That boy's got a sword. Also, how dare Lockhart just l offer to lend out that sword? It's Harry's sword, as far as he knows. He'll lend it to you. You don't have the authority to tell Harry to lend his sword out, Lockhart. But uh, moving back to, of course, the part of the book where Dumbledore reveals some facts about Harry and Voldemort, not the whole plan, because Harry can't know that yet. Yeah. But, uh, of course, Harry asks, he finds all these similarities about him and Tom Riddle, and he just doesn't know why. And Dumbledore reveals one fact that Harry can speak Parseltongue because Voldemort could, and Voldemort transferred parts of himself into Harry, which is very interesting. Hint, 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 wink, wink. Wonder what that means. Yeah, it kind of brings back to the idea that if Dumbledore was aware at this moment that Harry could be a Horcrux, or maybe he was thinking it, because this is a really big sign that Harry can speak Parseltongue, and that's very unusual. I think as soon as he started and heard that Harry spoke Parseltongue, he's like, there's no way he didn't get that from Voldemort somehow. Yeah. I don't know about, like, Horcrux level. Like, I don't think that word would have even come into his mind. I think he's just maybe at this point, like, researching ways spells can deflect and somehow transfer someone's powers, or, like being in close proximity to someone when they almost die. I'm like, he's probably doing like weird research on it, but I don't think Horcrux has come up yet necessarily. That's definitely a big hint in like the Harry is a Horcrux camp, that this is kind of the beginning where we kind of get the idea that there's some kind of connection between Harry and Voldemort and 
becomes this really big thing later on. Yep. But as Harry and Dumbledore are having this moment, Lucius has lost his cool and bursts into the office like crazy. Oh, Lulu. <laughs> Full drama, hair flowing. Dobby's still trying to clean his boots or something as he's like stomping in there. Yeah, poor Dobby. I also love that Lucius shows up and it's such a full Scooby-Doo moment. And I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's just perfect. I do love how, like, Lucius is so, like, even, we know he's a bad guy, but the way he always speaks so elegantly in, like, society that he comes off looking polite and polished and, like, just very superior. But here he's completely lost it. He's, like, threatening Harry. He's threatening Dumbledore. He's just being, like, a piece of shit. So the mask has really slipped. Yeah. I do think it's very interesting that Dumbledore's kind of insinuating that Lucy is gave Ginny's diary for political gain because he targeted Ginny so Arthur would look bad in the long run. Yeah. I feel like Lucius is definitely a conniver. Like, if he's going to do something like, oh, this is a Voldemort thing that'll screw over Hogwarts, he's also going to do it in a way to personally benefit himself. Like, he's just, like, economical with his efforts. I think that's the right terminology. If I'm going to do one thing, I'm going to make sure this one thing benefits me in a number of ways. <laughs> Which I honestly respect. Lazy life, you know, work smart, not hard. <laughs> I think that's like a very Malfoy thing. Like it's always you're induced something if it benefits you as well. Like he does all these things for Voldemort, but it's so he can be in Voldemort's inner circle. Like he's doing it for, I guess, like not political gain, but like just like. Yeah, he's doing it to get the political capital, right? Of being close to Voldemort, respected by, or not respected by Voldemort. Let's not get crazy, but valued by Voldemort. It, he, yeah, he wants to be valued by Voldemort. And that's why it's so hard when he falls he messes up so bad that like it affects his entire family. Yeah. Like it's embarrassing to say smudge on the Malfoy reputation of being racist pieces of shit. <laughs> but uh, Lucius has kind of a hissy fit that Voldemort's back and he hates the suggestion that he threatened all the other governors. He would simply never. Blasphemy. I would never do that. No, no, never would he ever. And Dumbledore's just like, now don't you give out any more Voldemort stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's got, that's his Voldemort diary. He's also got his Voldemort friendship bracelets. He's got his Voldemort open-toed sandals. He's got his Voldemort backpack. <laughs> gel pens, Voldemort gel pens. Dobby, despite being, like, you know, abused by Lucius in this, like, just casually in the office, he's, like, kicking Dobby and stuff. But he's giving Harry a hint about the diary and Lucius. Takes Harry a few minutes, though, because Harry... Harry's slow. He's been through a lot. Yeah, he, and he's 12, I suppose. Hermione would have would have already figured out what Dobby's trying to say, but we can't all be Hermione Granger. I love that in the book, he Harry not only uses his sock to sort of free Dobby, but he sticks the diary in his sock. In the movie, he sticks the sock in the diary. So it's a really stretchy sock. Maybe the diary is a lot smaller than I think it was. Because I think a diary, like a journal almost, maybe a diary is like more like a pocket diary. I mean, like, like to me, like a diary is like, I would say like this size, like the size of like a, a soft covered book, like size of the... I mean, maybe some of my socks I could really stretch a book into. Or maybe it's just a little bit smaller than this. Yeah, I think of those, like, pocket, like, planters, maybe, or, like, that would fit into a sock. Yeah, I, I mean, it's got to be 
bigger than that, just because it's not convenient to diary in a book that small. But like, maybe it's slightly smaller than we picture it, and his sock is slightly bigger than we picture it. Like, so I think when I think of the scene, I do think a lot of the movie scene where it's like inside the diary, and it's like I do like in the movie that we don't we aren't really aware of it until it happens. So it's it's more like I guess rewarding that way, where we're all we're surprised as Dobby. I'm like, oh, it's just the diary. Oh wait. Huzzah! Yes. We'll talk about that more when we do our movie review, but... Yeah, but I, I quite think... I think it's comical. It's one of those moments, sort of like, right after they take the polyjuice potion and they've just mentioned that they need the bigger size clothes, how Harry and Ron rip their clothes because they forgot to take them off before taking the polyjuice. <laughs> this putting his sock over a book is one of those equally just, like, kind of goofy book moments. Well, that just, like, went over my head, I guess. Sticking a book in a sock. That doesn't work. <laughs> Very stretchy. Yeah, I imagine I, like, the sock was on top and then Lucius peels it off and is like, oh, get this away from me. But that makes it even funnier that it's in the sock because now he just like hands him a square stretched out sock. And Lucius is like, I would I would just not accept that if someone passed it to me. I would be like, please keep your socks to yourselves. What? I've suffered enough today. Like, Well, this part is amazing because... Uh... Dobby's freed and Lucius has honestly like like blown a gasket. He's like furious. And it's just like the most poetic justice, justice where he attempts to like, you know, throttle Harry and Dobby can finally use his own magic and he throws Lucius down like the whole flight of stairs. Get the heck out of Dobby. And when he tries to get his wand out, he's just like, no, get out of here. Get. <laughs> Lucius just leaves. <laughs> I love that. Lucius, Mr. I'm a big, strong, powerful wizard being like, shit. But he knows. <laughs> My house elf is more powerful than me. That's kind of like when you treat people in fear of, of you and then once, like, they become more... The they develop their self-esteem and realize they have their own power. Why we say pe treat people like you want to be treated because you never know what will happen. Yeah. Perry asked Dobby to never try and save his life again, which is... Really cute, and it's like a really sincere moment because Dobby spent like this whole year trying to save Harry and almost killing him. But the sad fact is, coming around full circle, is that Dobby dies saving Harry at the end. Yeah, Dobby does a lot. He he does not follow through. He always tries to save Harry's life. Poor Dobby. He's such he's such a great guy. He stresses me out a lot. He gives me a lot of anxiety, but he's a good person. Good elf. <laughs> but uh, Harry goes to the feast, which is a kind of weird celebration where everyone is in their pajamas. It's the middle of the night and they're having a feast. Yeah, I hope it's like a, like, what would you even want to eat? At? Like, in my mind, it's like two in the morning and you were just awoken. So I'm like, I hope there's a lot of like cake. <laughs> I don't know, like salty snacks and sweet savory treats. I just think it would be kind of fun when you're up in the middle of the night in your pajamas. It's kind of just like a big pajama party. So uh, we get a lot of little character interactions that are described. So Hermione comes back super happy because Harry Ron solved everything. You guys aren't as dumb as I thought you were. <laughs> yeah, she's very happy. Uh, Justin Finch Fletchley comes and apologizes to Harry for suspecting him. What a kiss ass. I mean... Kind of, Hufflepuffs are like loyal, you know, they admit when they make mistakes and it takes a lot of guts, especially to do that as a, like a child. Oh, that's like, true. I made a mistake and I am sincerely sorry. And of course, Hagrid gets back out of Azkaban and he's in for party. <laughs> I don't know. Oh yeah, he's already drunk. <laughs> Probably. I mean, he was in Azkaban for like, what, a month, two months? I mean, I don't blame him. I think I think I'll forgive his um, drinking this time. And maybe he's not drunk. Maybe he's sober. Maybe it worked like a rehab program. <laughs> this might be the only time we ever see Hagrid sober. Yeah, sober. 
So McGonagall announces to the school that they're going to cancel the exams, which Hermione is apparently upset about. And I'm wondering why she's upset. Like, I know she likes to have, like, the examinations because it proves how much you've learned. And that's how she kind of, I guess, like, measures herself against everyone. But the thing is, Hermione's been, like, in a coma, basically, for, like, two or three months. Like, why would she want the exams? Like, because she won't be prepared for them. Maybe she wants the exam because an exam kind of works like a summary of what you learned that year. So then she'll know what she doesn't know so she can study over the summer. Like if they just end the year without exams, where is she going to get a study guide to learn what she needs to catch up on? Well, I do think I do think she's like she is aware of that. But I also think that she likes having like the grades like she likes knowing like her marks and stuff. And it's how she yeah, she bases a lot of her self-esteem on school so she needs that positive reinforcement yeah but i'm just like obviously she wouldn't have done well so i just feel like it worked out for her and everyone that did miss like all the school like colin i bet she thought it would be an exciting challenge like i wonder how well i'll do on the exams having missed the entire school year you know it's like she was waiting in line for a roller coaster for six months and now they're like actually you don't have to go on the roller coaster and she's like but i was so excited maybe she's like not really aware of how much time has passed she's still she's a little disoriented she's like what it's not even june yet like we need to have exams and they're like hermione it's the end of june although it is hermione maybe she read ahead in all of her textbooks and had already started studying for the exams before she got like so maybe she's like, well, I already spent... She's like, I already have my flashcards ready. <laughs> I've made my flashcards. <laughs> she's disappointed that you wasted all that time highlighting things and color coding her note. Another announcement is that Lockhart will not be returning next year for Defense Against the Dark Arts. And apparently the entire school cheers with this, even the professors. Even the teachers. So I find it really funny that like at the beginning, like obviously Harry and Ron were kind of like, they didn't really like Lockhart. They found him to be, like, a fraud and not really what he said he was. But most of the school generally seemed in awe of him. So it kind of shows how it, he, he his, like, standing has gone down as he loses his memory. I think he is, this, a lot of the students thought he was awesome because he'd been referred to as, like, a legend and they'd heard all these stories of him. I think most of the teachers probably pretty early on had, like, two conversations with him and were like, oh, no, he's an idiot. An absolute idiot. Yeah, the teachers did not like him from the get-go. But, like, generally, this, most of the students, like, most of the general population of the Wizarding World thought really highly of him. So it just kind of shows, like, how his tanked, his popularity has gone down. Like, everyone is happy he's leaving. Yeah, his reputation preceded him in that everyone who didn't know him believed all of the things said about him. And as soon as they met him, they're like, oh, never mind. And then we have a little tidbit of the fact that Lucius has been kicked out of the gov board of governors, which is, I just imagine him not being kicked out of like the PTA. Like he's not allowed to be a PTA dad anymore. Yeah. He's like, oh man, I was going to make banana bread for next week's meeting. Actually, Lucius, your banana bread is dry and not even that good. Oh shit. Oh, that hurts. That hurts. Never mind being attacked by his own house elf. It's, it's his banana bread being insulted. So... And off the book on the train back to Hogwarts and Harry decides to remember to embarrass Percy before the book ends. And he's like, Jenny, what did you see Percy doing that he didn't want you to tell us? Making out with his girlfriend. Like, oh, he was kissing his girlfriend. <laughs> and they're all like, she's like, don't tease him, Fred and George. And they're like, we wouldn't dream of it with their, their fingers crossed. <laughs> 
I was just wondering, so Percy kept this relationship a secret because he's writing to her all summer, but I'm wondering, was it a secret only from his family or like did he, or were like people at school aware of it, like his friends and stuff? I mean, like maybe his like close friends were aware, but I feel like if I didn't want my family to know and I had like four siblings running around at school with me, it wouldn't be a very public thing. I don't, I, we don't really know if Percy has like a group of friends like the rest of the kids do, but I just feel like it'd be very hard to keep like a relationship a secret. <laughs> Not if you're prefects, though, right? Because they get to go and do, like, they get to be out past hours. They get to be in places they probably shouldn't be normally. So I feel like because him and Penelope are both prefects, they have a unique set of circumstances where, like, it would be easier to hide things, especially because they have all these reasons to be together alone. Like, oh, we're talking about prefect stuff, you know? I'm just wondering, like, I mean, no, from per- I feel like Percy's a very private guy, so I understand him wanting to keep it a secret, but what, I don't know about Penelope. Like, I feel like, what, they're, like, 15, 16. Like, I, don't, I think you'd want to talk to your girlfriends about your boyfriend. Well, I'm sure she talks to her, but that's the thing, right? The way the houses work at Hogwarts, everything is so separated. Yeah, that's true. Like, you don't really hang out and socialize with the other houses. So, like, her Ravenclaw gals probably all know, and, like, but because they're not in the same house, so it's not like they're snuggling in the common room, it's probably a lot easier to hide it. But I think uh, Carrie kind of saved Percy because then he gets to be very public about his girlfriend. He's very proud of his girlfriend, as we see in, like, Prisoner of Azkaban when they're both head boy and head girl and stuff. So, you know, Percy's coming out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that is the end of Chamber of Secrets. I have some some notes, some points, some ideas, some thoughts, some comments, some concerns. Um... So one of the things that I think is really important about this book is because it's the second one, it's really what establishes like what will be the patterns of the Harry Potter series. So because everything that happens in the first book could just be unique to that book. You don't know if it's going to be an overlapping theory. Yeah, it was our introduction into the series. Yeah. So the second one really sort of sets the tone for what's going to be a key elements of the overarching story. And I think specifically with Harry Potter, that being that it's always a mystery. Like the core, there's magic and all this is happening, but it's always like a, a who done it or what done it. Every sort of book, and this one just sort of like you might just think the first one's a bit of a mystery because it's the first book. So this really establishes that, and I think that's one of the things that makes the series so enjoyable. Is there's always every story has some sort of mystery. Each book has one in its core that sort of guides the plot. And I think that's really fun because it's a different way to do mystery because it's not the classic mystery format. It's a whimsical fantasy book, but it's a mystery. Um, So I think it does a good job of sort of establishing that that's going to be a core part of the overarching series. And it also does a good job of sort of reestablishing Voldemort as also being sort of part of the series and not just part of book one. And also sort of humanizing him. Like in the first book, he's almost more of a concept than a character. And by giving us bits of Tom Riddle and like his past and hearing from people who knew him and seeing how he actually treated people like Hagrid, you get a much better understanding of like, he's going to be a character with depth. He's not just going to be a flat sort of concept of evil. Yeah, he's definitely more real. Which I really like. Um, One of the other things I like, and this sort of pertains back to Percy and Penelope, is that I always find the Harry Potter books, the the writing itself really does a good job of echoing the maturity of, of the characters and for people in our age group, the age of the readers as well. So like in this book, Percy and Penelope is the first time we hear about a romantic relationship that's with students. So not just like, oh, parents are married is the first time we actually get that. And it's presented in a way 
not just how the characters react, but also the way it's written by the author in a way that is like the most in line with how a 12 year old would see a romantic relationship. So it's introduced as sort of like a nana and a boo boo. Percy has a girlfriend. Ha ha ha. Like it's something the twins would make fun of him for, which is totally how kids that are like 12 see that. And it's cool to see that like knowing how the books go forward as the character's maturity progresses. And as me as a reader around that age progressed their relationships and the way the relationships are written and described becomes sort of in tune with the exact maturity level you are at that point. So like crushes are talked about, like just the terminology and the words used are so specific to that stage and age group. It's not like relationships are described unilaterally and the kids interact with it in an age appropriate way. It's not like, it's really, I think, well done. Yeah, it's very true. Like this is a very innocent way to introduce a relationship. We don't really, it's like a minor character. So it's just kind of like, oh, Percy's dating because Percy's like 16. But it's not like a big focus because the main characters are 12 and they're, that's not what they're interested and in. And as a reader earlier on, I'm not interested in it either. I don't want to read about it. But we see in Prisoner of Azkaban how things slowly start to change where Harry gets his first crush and we kind of see like how his narrative kind of changes towards girls. And it slowly gets more and more as like they age and we age. Yeah, so doing a little book wrap up, I just wanted to talk about our overall thoughts on this book. And starting off, I just think... Chamber of Secrets is one of my favorites. It's definitely my favorite movie, I think, out of all of them. And I'll talk about that when we do our movie review. But I just, I think I like the mystery of this, where it's still a mystery, but it's also tied to Hogwarts, because like you said, this format is like extending the series. So we don't have to do all like the, we don't have to learn about everything, about how all the magic works, because we already know that. So we get to know more about the castle and more about the people in it. Yeah, I love the expanding of the world. What I like about this book is the setting of the precedent for what to expect in the rest of the series. I think it does a good job of that. I think it's funny that this book does it because the next one is sort of the most different of all the books in the series, I would say. It's like Voldemort isn't really the big bad. Like it's, you know what I mean? Which is kind of like, it's not about Voldemort really at all, but which is funny because it subverts the expectation that we have right now, which we just said, like it sets that tone that that's going to be the reoccurring theme. So it's kind of fun in that way that it like leads you up to have something unexpected happen in the next book. I think that's really well done. I like the development of the characters. I like the sass. I miss the sass. It's so the attitude and like the snark yeah, one of the reasons I think I like this book too is it still has that whimsy innocence to it where it's nothing's a bit not too heavy. Yeah. So rereading it, it's kind of nice because it's not like you're not dealing with all like the heavy emotions of the later books. Everything's still... It's not the fate of the wizarding world. It's not the end of, you know, it's just sort of like problems in a small school. I also like the... I mean, the red herrings are fun, especially when you're younger. They're trying to make us think Percy has something to do with it. The... It's it's cute. I think it's a really, really cute book. It's a weird way to say it, but like... And it introduces you to a lot of like the issues with the wizarding world. I think that because the first book showed wizardry and wizard society in such a gilded perspective, it showed them as these whimsical, magical, glorious beings and their world is so fantastic... It was good and it made it really enjoyable, but it wasn't 
as honest, I think, a perspective of what Wizarding Society really is. And I think this book shows a lot of like the darker sides and shows the complexity of wizards and that they're not a higher form of being than muggles. They People who are wizards are just as likely to show a lot of the undesirable human traits like selfishness, like viewing themselves as higher than others and all the other negative traits we see here in this book. And I think it does a good job of like bringing wizard society down to earth and giving Harry and the reader a more informed opinion of wizarding society. It's less idealistic and it's more realistic seeing them for their flaws and not just their strengths. That's a really great point. This book does really focus on wizarding society and also the dark side of the wizarding world. So standout characters for me in this book were Dobby, obviously. I think Dobby's like the MVP of this book. Like he really sets everything off. Yeah. Even though despite he almost kills Harry multiple times, it's coming from a good place. And you know, and yeah, I just feel like this is his moment to kind of shine and show what he's about and kind of takes a step out of like his like normal routine of life where he's just supposed to serve his master and he looks out for the greater wizarding world chaotic good i think that would be the way to describe it i also think hermione really comes out too because we kind of see hermione not just as like an addition to harry and ron we get more of her character coming out and like what she believes in and also she just kind of saves the day like she's the one that like found out a lot of things and i think even i think do think like even with her being out of like commission for most of the book, like, she still kind of comes through. Like, she, they couldn't have done it without her. It's kind of really establishing Hermione as, like, an important force in this golden trio. Yeah, and also what I like about Hermione in this book is that in the other book, she's sort of fighting to prove herself or earn her place with Harry and Ron, and she's already established that. So in this book, she really doesn't, she can be sort of unapologetically herself in a way, at least with Harry and Ron, where she can make crazy theories, be super nerdy, call them idiots. Like, she doesn't have to earn their respect or their friendship anymore, so she can just, that's not getting in her way. She can actually focus on what matters. What other characters, in your opinion, are, like, MVP in this book? Fox the Phoenix. What a bird. Um, uh, Minerva McGonagall? I feel this is just, like, sometimes as one of the only sane people walking around, I think. Yeah. How much worse some of the things these kids would have to go through would have been if there hadn't been someone with some semblance of common sense around keeping an eye on their overall well-being bless their hearts um not in a not in like a I like the character way but in an I enjoy the character way I think Gildroy Lockhart contributes so much to this book yeah even really good at making you hate him with every time he opens yeah, his mouth he's really and he's funny but not in a way he wants to be funny like it's just he's so ridiculous he's so flamboyant he's such a peacock it's it's really enjoyable to read Gildora Lockhart. You, I roll my eyes a lot, but that's okay because it really adds to the story. And some favorite moments I had for this book is just Harry at the burrow. I love the burrow in general and Harry's first experience at the burrow. And just, we talked about this in the, our episodes covering it, but just like how immediately the Weasleys adopt him into their family and how at ease Harry feels at the burrow, like really quickly. He's only there for like two weeks, but he feels more at home there. Uh, I love that for him. Also love Hermione turning into a cat. Hilarious. Classic. <laughs> I also love the like the Ginny and Hermione's crushes and how they act. Like Ginny is so like shy and she's like and it's just really sweet, her little crush on Harry, and Harry's kind of aware of it. 
And also Hermione's, like, first crush, that she's, like, getting crushes before the boys, and how their reaction to Hermione getting a crush, even if it's on, like, the worst person, like, Gilderoy, who's not even worthy. But it's still so funny. <laughs> and, of course, I have to end off with Dobby almost killing Harry every time he tried to save him. I love Hermione telling Draco that not everyone on the Gryffindor team needed to buy their way on for Quidditch. Love that. Good for you, Hermione. Let him know. Uh, I know what my absolute least favorite part is, and I think that's almost more important, which is the trauma I feel for Ginny and Harry about that Valentine <laughs> situation with the singing singing dwarves. That stresses me out so Your much. Your embarrassment. It hurts me. It pains me deeply. Yeah, I think some of my favorite chapters in this book are the burrow, obviously, getting to meet Ron's family and in his house and kind of our first experience of like a magical house. The Rogue Bludger, just because it's hilarious and it's really action-packed. And the Pondus Potion, obviously, because a lot of good tidbits. And I just like seeing Malfoy like in his like own like area. Like that's like a safe space in his common room where he's like acting. Yeah, he has no one to try and impress there because everyone's already impressed by him as far as he's concerned. And of course, the air is Slytherin just because I love like the Tom Riddle versus Harry conversations. And we get a lot of really great information about Voldemort as well. I do love the Voldemort tidbits. It's very juicy. Oh, I love the dueling club. That's so important. Harry learns that spell. Snape gets to be snarky. I love I love Snape being snarky at Lockhart. Obviously, that all will always spark joy. My for some reason, my chapters are not like key plot chapters. I'm just like, I really love the like, the fun razzle dazzle chapters. Well, it's nice to get those before in the later books, you don't get as much like whimsical stuff because everything's so plot focusing. So it's kind of building the plot as they're more complicated. But in the earlier books, you get really crazy things that are just like happening. Yeah, I like the accoutrements, the tidbits, the decoration of wizardry, you know. Favorite location? Yeah, I love the burrow. The burrow is fantastic. I also had uh, Dumbledore's office because I think it's just really cool. I don't really, Dumbledore's obviously not a great guy, whatever, but his office is cool. I like the Chamber of Secrets as a location because like, I could do so much with that space. Yeah, it's quite a space, actually, the way they describe it. Gorgeous, huge, high ceilings, like... They should have repurposed it for something. They could have maybe had Dumbledore's army train down there. How many people know Parseltongue? Seriously. So I'm keeping my favorite classes the same as I had them at the end of the last book, which are Transfiguration and Charm. So I didn't get a lot of those classes in this book, but I just feel like those are the, the coolest subjects right now, but they'll probably change when we go into Prisoner of Aspen when we get new classes. Yeah. I feel like Defense Against the Dark Arts is my favorite, but not in this book because they don't actually do anything. Yeah, that's why I said I almost put it, but like... We haven't really had, like, decent Defense Against the Dark Art classes, because I don't think we really got anything of what Krill taught, and then the law card is just, like, stupid. But I'm sure going into Prisoner of Aspen when Lupin comes in. Lulu. Yeah, I love Lupin. And my professor's staying the same with McGonagall, because she's just, like, you know, she's just that person that's always there and has the, your best interests at heart. I love McGonagall as, like, a teacher and as a person, but Snape is my favorite most things, because... Um, well, I'll talk about it in therapy, <laughs> but the point is, still love him. Can't help it. In our last book, you did a power ranking, which I thought was really cool, where you ranked it, like, who was the most, like, powerful at this point in the series? So I tried to do mine, which I thought Dumbledore's still, I think, at the top right now. And then I also thought Tom Riddle should be in there, because he's quite powerful, even though he's not technically, like, I guess, like, real He's a piece of Tom Riddle, and he kicks most people's ass. Yeah, piece of Tom Riddle. But yeah, he still, like, like did all these crazy magical things. I also, thought, I also put Snape in there, because, you know, he is, like, 
he was in the dueling club. He did a lot of like magic and stuff. Despite my feelings, but I also thought Harry was actually pretty like powerful. Like he's learning more spells. I just think also just the way his brain was like he had to kind of like figure all these things out on his own, like him and Ron together. And I put Lockhart at the end because Lockhart kind of smart with the way he did his memory terms, but also kind of dumb. Yeah, he's an idiot overall, but that one thing he does, he's good at. Yeah, so that's my power ranking. That's a good power ranking. I would say, interestingly enough, I would put Lucius Malfoy on there. Not so much for magic, but for political power, because he convinces all the board of governors to get Dumbledore out of the school, which I think is a huge thing. And if his plan had succeeded, it would have had a huge negative impact on the Weasleys, on the school, on Dumbledore. So like, I feel like I would do Dumbledore, Lucius, sort of then Tom Riddle, just because none of the Tom Riddle would have happened if Lucius hadn't sort of taken the initiative and sort of opened that door for the diary, opened that diary, dare I say. I mean, I would definitely put Snape in there because I always do, but also because, yeah, he teaches Harry the most important spell. Also, he makes that potion. I mean, he makes the potion that cures everybody using the mandrakes. So I guess after Snape, I would have to do Sprout because she grows the mandrakes, which is also significant. Um, I mean, then Harry, it's not that I don't think Harry is powerful. It's that he doesn't really do powerful magic or manipulate anything. Like he, he sure does stab a snake. He stabs the snake, which is great, but that's sort of his big moment and he doesn't do anything particularly powerful the rest of the time. Like, I wouldn't list him as a powerful character because he doesn't wield power, really. Yeah, and you also did this character rankings with the, the owl like ratings, which I thought was fun. I gave uh, Dobby and Hermione an outstanding because I thought they were the MVP characters of this book. Dobby, of course, set everything off. He like risked his life to warn Harry and, you know, try to save him despite almost killing him. But like without Dobby, we wouldn't have like had anything. Also Hermione because she's really come into her own this book and she's just like, you know, basically solved everything without um on her own. And here and Ron just kind of took credit for what she did. Yeah, classic boys, am I right? It's like group project life. And then of course, exceeds expectations. I gave them Harry and Ron, you know, like they did they did good with what they had. And I think I more gave Ron an E just because he survived the year with his broken wand, which I think was like amazing because he could have died so many times. He didn't kill anybody. <laughs> they solved the whole thing. They like saved Jenny. They did everything. I didn't get everyone acceptable because I couldn't really think of anything. I gave Snape a poor just because I don't like Snape and I thought he sucked at some points. But, you know, I couldn't give him a lower rating because, you know, he did teach you to expel your armis and, you know, did some things. Lucius gets a dreadful because he was a terrible governor and just a terrible person. And Lockhart gets a troll because he was being a troll, basically, the whole book. <laughs> yeah, Lockhart is a troll. So I guess I would add on for Outstanding, we've got to do Come In Strong with Fox the Phoenix. He did a lot. Very impressive bird. Uh, Madame Pomfrey deserves an Outstanding because she had to put up with all those people. Once again, shout out to Madame Pomfrey, the true hero of Harry Potter. I would give exceed expectations to the Basilisk. I think Snake does great work. Honestly, he would have had Harry for sure if it weren't for that unexpected blindness situation. <laughs> also, really not the Snake's fault. He was just following instructions. Only one person could talk to him. He probably got real lonely down there. So, like, I have some sympathy for the Snake. <laughs> um, acceptable, I would give to... I mean, like Minerva McGonagall, she did her job. Probably should have scolded Dumbledore more times. I 
think most people were acceptable. Like, you know, they're, they're fine, but they didn't have standout moments. She had the best intentions in Tart, but she probably should have stepped out and did a few more things. She was keeping things in check. I wouldn't think Snape behaved poorly. I mean, he was a bit of a jerk, as is tradition, but I think he was hilarious calling Lockhart out on his shit. I think that was glorious. Yeah, well... That's your opinion. <laughs> I mean, he called him out during the dueling club. He's like, Gilderoy, weren't you just saying how you knew exactly where the chamber entrance was? Hmm, Gilderoy? Like, it's such good sass. I would, for poor, I would say the Board of Governors for being easily frightened into having Dumbledore fired. That's stupid. Do better, you know? Uh, yeah, ending off this book, uh, Snape sucks count total for this book was only four, which... I feel it's low, but Snape wasn't actually like a really big player in this book, unlike the last book. Because he isn't the red herring in this book. In the other book, they wanted you so badly to think he was the big bad that they gave us a lot of Snape. In this book, they're like, hmm, maybe it's Percy, and they're throwing at all these other options. And... and so the overall total for these two books is only eight, because I only gave Snape sucks counts four times in the last book. But don't worry, because next book, I'm probably going to go crazy. <laughs> Yeah, he's consistent though. Four in each of the first two books. But yeah, that's 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 everything for. That's the book. Yeah. So next time we will jump into the Chamber of Secrets movie review, which should be fun because this is probably I think my favorite movie. This is the one I watch like all the time. So I'm excited to talk about it. And after this, we will finally be jumping into Prisoner of Azkaban, which is the first Harry Potter book I ever read. So so many like nostalgia coming up in like the next couple episodes. I I love the third book. I really love the third book. I'm very excited. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pottery Visited. We'll be back next time. If you have any comments or questions or things you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, feel free to email us at potterrevisitedpodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on social media at Pottery Visited. And don't forget to let us know if you think Lucius Malfoy makes good banana bread. I don't think so. Bye! <laughs>